The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been here now for going on eight months or over eight months. And uh, this today marks the third week that we've spent in 1 Corinthians. It's the greatest essay that's ever been written about the greatest thing in the world, love. So we thank you for coming. Over the past few weeks, we've seen that the Apostle Paul, um, for the, the Apostle Paul, love was the chief marker of a Christian. Love for God and love for his fellow man. But this love was far more than emotion and feelings of warmth. Uh, Father Zosima in Fyodor Dostoevsky's classic, The Brothers Karamazov, teaches that love in, in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. See, feelings are like dreams. They're fun, they're easy, they're passive, they're spontaneous. But the love that Paul has been describing is hard and precious, more like a diamond. It has got sharp edges. So Paul has been building out this concept of love, and he's been doing it in the context of a local church. And not just a local church that we all think a nice, cozy, soft little place where really good people get together, but he's been doing it in the midst of a really jacked up church, a church that's struggling with sin, with struggling with their identity, struggling love in each other well. He says in the midst of this context, it's your love that determines your actions. You need to hear that this morning. It's your love. Paul says it's your love or loves that determines your actions, your self-love leads you to envy, jealousy, boasting, rudeness, irritability, resentment, and enjoying wrongdoing. St. Augustine said, my love is my weight. What's that? That means that my love is my gravity, that it pulls me in, that we all move in the direction of our love. Paul says, yes, that's right. If you love yourself more than you love God, you will be pulled inevitably in selfish directions. But if you love God, that love will pull you into a God-centered direction of love. The gravity of a God-centered love will pull you into patient, kind, truth-rejoicing directions. 
This is why all people are right now either going towards God in heaven or they're going away from God and toward hell. It's the gravity of their love. Your love for yourself, your love for your prestige and your esteem, your love will pull you in a self-centered direction or your love for God will pull you in a God-centered direction. Paul goes on to say in verse 7 that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, indeed, Paul's description of love is unsinkable. It's undefeatable. It's unconquerable. Paul's idea and concept of love, for Paul, love is invincible. Now, is this just sentimentality? Put it on a Hallmark card, Paul. Put it on a coffee cup. Save it for Valentine's Day. Save it for the wedding when everybody's, oh, oh, ooh and on and goo-goo-eyed. And everybody's like, mm, it ain't going to last. I know her. I know what she looks like with her makeup off. It ain't going to last. I know what happens when he ain't going to get his way. Is this invincible love... Is it just sentimentality? Is Paul just kind of waxing eloquently here? Is love really, can I ask that question? Is love really invincible or is that just preacher talk? Can love really burn in the midst of all suffering? Can love continue to burn in the midst of loss, in the midst of any sin? Can love, here's one for our generation, can love continue to burn in the midst of boredom? See, our society, the way we live, our life, the whole world, has got a million different things that it throws at love, that it tries to quench love. And I think in most of our minds, we kind of have this hope that love is invincible, but most of our experiences, love is anything but invincible. Love can be quenched by someone better looking. Love can be quenched by better options. Love can be quenched by boredom. Love can be quenched by a 2D picture on a screen. So that's where we're headed today. We're going to talk, is this invincible love that Paul Paul talks about, is this a pipe dream? Now, what's interesting to me, when we read this list, I've never met a person that reads this list, this what love is. I've never met a person in all my counseling and my going on now 15 years of ministry. I've never heard a person go, "That, that, that description of love sounds completely unappealing to me. I've never heard a person do that. And it's interesting too, that as we read it, I've never met a person go, and you know what? This list, somebody's reading my mail. This describes me perfectly. Did my wife write this list? Because I'm incredibly patient and kind and gentle, right? Did my wife, I've never met a person that says, yep, that's me, right? Now, everybody who reads this, don't we all go, oh, love, that's so nice. But don't we all internally go, I fail that list. I don't love like that. Don't we all do that? But now let me tell you this. So we all, let me just say, we read that list. We read that scripture. We read love is patient, kind, gentleness, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It's not irritable. It doesn't boast. We read all that and we go, yeah, I think that's true about love. But don't we also at the same moment, at the same time, excuse ourselves away from it? Don't we, don't we go, yeah, that's a happy out. That's out there, but I, I know I, you know, I can't do that, right? Don't you kind of give yourself a pass on that? Like, I, can't, I don't really love like that. But here, this is how judgmental you are. Now, I know you might be in this room. You might think you're the most level-headed, open, uh, tolerant person in society, right? Anything goes. But I don't care how tolerant you are. I bet you're really judgmental when it comes to love. I bet you are. I bet you look at the standard of love, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, all this stuff that's going on here. And you go, oh, I try. I know I fail. I'm just, you know, I try, but my heart's in it. Just don't do, don't do it perfectly. But I bet when you look at other people, isn't this type of love, the desire that we all have, isn't this the demand that we all have for everybody else? We kind of demand them to be patient with us. 
We demand them to be kind with us. We demand them to be long-suffering with us. We demand them to give us the benefit of the doubt. We demand them to stick with us even when we make mistakes. Don't we kind of require this type of love from everybody else? Don't you expect your husband to treat you this way or your boss to treat you or your coworkers or your mom or your father or your sister? Don't we all have this standard of love that we judge everybody else by? See, I think somewhere down deep, we actually believe that love should be invincible. If we sin against someone, if we don't act loving towards someone and they cut us off and they walk away and they curse us and they get up and they take it to Facebook, right? They tell everybody how bad we did them. Don't we feel wronged? Hey, give me grace. I'm not perfect. I try. Don't we demand? I mean, don't we expect them to give us grace and be kind and forgiving towards us? Don't we expect that? See, I think down deep inside of us, we all resonate with this chapter. If you're an unbeliever in here today, if you're not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, don't you resonate with this? Don't you expect love to have some standard that you, and you kind of expect it from other people, but you want them to give you grace when you fail that standard? See, don't, somewhere down deep, we actually think, we actually have a belief that love should last forever. That love is what life is all about. Now, why is that? See, if you you have a secular, uh, humanistic kind of worldview, science has no answer for that. See, science is just according to, you know, biology, neuroscience, that, that love is only a chemical reaction in our brain meant to cause us to hook up and procreate. There is no uh, purpose, true purpose for love that lasts. It's not pragmatic. But don't we all know that it's far more, love is far more than a chemical reaction in my brain. Cause me to maybe, you know, have some kind of stable society or cause me to try to find someone and, and marry them. Don't we all really ultimately believe that love is something deeper than that? If you've ever had a one night stand, did that leave you feeling loved? Did it leave you satisfied and fulfilled? Did you walk away from that going, that was just deep and abiding love? So for our study today, we're out of the realm of science. Science can tell us what is, can never tell us why. We're out of the realm of science. Science really can't help us at all. If we want to know why we all think that we deserve this type of love, we need to go to theology. And in 1 John, we learn that God is love. But how can, can I ask you this question? We kind of hear that, maybe Sunday school answer. Oh yeah. How can God be love? Well, we heard it in our profession of faith today. That's a good question. See, God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one, and theologians call that the Trinity. Triune, okay? Unity in diversity. Theologian Peter Kreef says it this way. Listen, if God is not a Trinity, God is not love. For God, for love requires three things. A lover, a beloved, And a relationship between them. God is in himself all three. So in the Christian scriptures, we learn that we human beings were made by love. God made us. He is love in himself. We're made by love and we're made for love. Why do we crave love? My daughter, right? feel sorry for my daughter. She gets on every illustration these days. My daughter is very young and she craves love. Like right now, she's really angry that I cannot marry her, that Javin cannot marry her. She'll throw a fit and go, well, who can marry me? Like she craves love. Like that's, she knows something down deep inside. She wants to get married, right? She wants love. I think we're all like that. I think we all, at somewhere deep inside, deep down, we desire a true and lasting love. 
Now listen, this love standard that we all have, this craving that we all have for love, I believe, and I think the scriptures teach, that that's a memory trace of heaven. That's a memory trace of heaven. We were loved like this, like 1 Corinthians 13. We were loved like this at one time. It's in our DNA and we crave the love of God. I'm going to say we have an insatiable love hunger. Just like you have a hunger for food, a craving that has to be filled. And that craving tells you that there's something out there that that can fill it. Our hunger for love, our craving for love is one apologetic or proof for the existence of God. Because we hunger for love, ultimate love has to be out there. Ultimate love that fulfills us. And I think that comes from being made in the image of God. Now, I want you to look at verse 12 and we're going to, we're going to check something out here. What does that mean to love? What does it mean to be loved? What is this memory trace thing? We're going to talk about it. Look at chapter 13, verse 12. It says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, and this city in Corinth was known for their fabrication of fancy mirrors, okay? That's why he's using this illustration, okay? Um, I, I, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, it's talking about when Christ comes to set up his kingdom on this earth, then we'll see Jesus face to face. Now I know in part my knowledge is incomplete when I'm on this earth. Then I shall know fully when Christ comes to consummate his kingdom. We shall know. We won't know all things. We won't be God. But we'll know, we'll know him fully. Look at even Here's the thing though. And I shall know fully. Look. Even as I have been fully known. That's a past tense there. As I have been fully known. Why is this knowledge language in the midst of this love chapter? Talking about being, what does love look like and what does knowing someone look like? It's interesting here that this desire that's in each and every one of us is like this. Isn't it this? Let me, let me just add, let me present this. I think this text is telling us we all want to be fully known and fully loved. We want someone to know us completely head to our toes inside and out and to see us completely and know us fully and yet still love us deeply. Now, doesn't that present a little bit of a quandary for us? We want people to know everything about us, and yet with the possession of that knowledge to still love us deeply. Now, you might be like, I do not want anyone to know everything about us or everything about me. And I think that's more than likely a fear of being known. Now, let me just go into this. I want to be known fully and loved deeply. Now, aren't those two things mutually exclusive? Don't we believe that? If someone truly knows you, that means they know your sins, they know your struggles, they know your insecurities, they know how jealous you get, how angry and violent, how petty and irritable. If someone knows you that deeply, deeply, how could they still love you? Isn't that a quandary? Now, if you think love is a feeling, if you've bought into that in our society, that this love is this emotional thing that comes and goes and you can't really control it and you fall in and out of love and it's just this, this oozy thing that's in your heart somewhere. If you think love is a feeling and you live your life based on your emotions and your feelings, you should be intimately aware of this reality. How many of you have been walking along the road and you've seen a piece of roadkill there and you looked at it and you went, oh, right? Very few of us look upon something disgusting and and fall in love with it. Very few of us look upon something gross and emotionally connect with it. Right? This is, I know it's painfully obvious here. But here's where that goes. Let's just take that thought. What happens when someone sees something, or no, what happens when you see something disgusting in someone else? Do you go, are you drawn to them? Oh, jealousy. Come here. Oh, greed. Can we be friends? Right? Oh, self-centeredness. I hope you, could you be my neighbor? 
Ridiculous. We see something disgusting in someone. And that is disgusting. Those things are disgusting. I think we'd all say that. And what, we're repelled by them. Right? We're disgusted by them. Now, let's just keep following that. What happens then when someone gets to know us and they see our sin and they see our irritability and they see our pride and they see our ugliness? What do they do? Now, be honest. Don't you have that fear? Don't you have that fear? Don't you have that nagging fear in the back of your head when they really see me? When they really get to know me, they won't love me. They'll despise me. They'll be disgusted with me. Right? Now, this is kind of depicted uh, in the book, East of Eden, that I've been reading. And this man, he's kind of a lost man, doesn't really know what he's doing. And one day he, he meets this woman. She's been beat up. And uh, she was a prostitute. He didn't know it. And she'd been beat up. She's manipulative, all this kind of things. And he just fall. He has, his life comes into focus in that moment. And he says, okay, this is going to give me hope. This is going to give me peace. This is going to be my answer. I'll be, this, I'll be everything this woman needs. Knight in shining armor. I'm going to take care of her, right? And he, he, he marries her. And you think this, you know, the story does not go well. It gets really bad. She ends up shooting him and she runs off. She, he, she gives birth to his twins. She runs off. Okay. And he is sick with love. He's sick for 10 years. He mopes around. His life is gone. His, all of his identity doesn't know who he is. Can't even love it. Doesn't even love his kids. And then one moment, it's very strange. It's a great moment in the, in the story. One moment he finds out he has no idea. She's a prostitute. And in this one moment, he finds out she's a prostitute and he goes and visits her. She, she now she's a madam and she owns this whole house. He goes in and he visits her. And in this moment, he sees the ugliness in her heart. Before that moment, it was just rainbows and sunshine, right? Even though she treated him badly. And in this moment, he sees her ugliness. He sees her filth. He sees her heart and her wicked heart. And then it says, it's like he's reborn. In this moment, listen, in this moment where he could see her ugliness, his love dies and he can move on. Now, it took him 10 years. <laughs> It took him 10 years for his love to die, but then he could move on. Now, I don't think for most of us, it doesn't take 10 years for the spell to lift. I think for most of us, once we see, so, it takes a week to see somebody's insecurities, to see somebody's sin, to see somebody's ugliness. It takes uh, a day or two on the honeymoon to see somebody's brokenness, wickedness, right? It takes a few months in missional community. It takes a few conversations where you can just pick up on a person's sins. And what does it cause you to do? When you see ugliness in someone else, what does it cause you to do? Now, if your love is based on a feeling, it's gone. You're never going to get it back. You can never unlearn that thing about that person. You can never forget that thing about that person. So if your love is based on a feeling, it's gone. You can never get it back. See, once we see their flaws, don't we lose interest? If you're dating, don't you lose interest? Or are they going to lose interest in us? How long does it take for someone to see our weaknesses before they leave, before they walk away? Doesn't everyone have this kind of thought process down deep, this fear down deep? How could anyone know me completely and yet love me fully? If you really knew how lustful my thoughts were, if you really knew how envious I am when people I don't like succeed, if they really knew how depressed I get when I can't buy the new shoes or the new car or take the expensive vacation, if anyone knew me like I know me, they could not love me. And that forces me to either hide or pretend. I either hide, isolate myself, right? I don't let anybody in. I put up bars around my heart. My heart gets really hard and locked away. And I don't want anybody to know me because if they know me, they won't love me and they'll condemn me. So I, I just lock myself away. Or is it causes us to pretend, right? To fake it till we make it. 
I'm just going to act like everything's good. I'm going to project this image of myself that's successful and powerful and witty and faithful. This is why Facebook was created. Have you, listen, you know, if you had this experience, you meet somebody and they're depressed and they're kind of brooding and they're kind of dark and they're just not very fun to be around and they're just in a really deep, dark spot. And then you go to their Facebook and their Facebook is like, their life is awesome. They're super encouraging. They're quoting Oprah every other line, right? Oh man, just stick to it. Your dreams will come true. You could be anything you want to be. Oh man, just keep. And you're like, what? Who, 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 who is this person? Right? Their Facebook self is completely unlike their real self. Faking it. Hoping somehow positive thoughts and, and you know, projecting some image onto Facebook. People will love them because they're afraid of their weaknesses. But what Paul says here, he says here that love and the word Paul uses, we, we only have love, right? So we say we love hot dogs and we love Jesus in the same sentence, right? And there's something wrong with that. But in the Greek, there's different words for love, okay? There's, and C.S. Lewis has got a phenomenal little book called The Four Loves, if you want to read it, on kind of each type of love. But the Greek word that Paul uses, it was actually taken into the Greek, into the New Testament, specifically because the love of God seen in Jesus required a new word. And many of you know this word, it's, it's agape, that God's love, this word to describe God's love, God's love transcends all human ideas or expressions of love. It's a love for the utterly unworthy, a love which proceeds from a God who is love. It's a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from any merit in the loved. David Pryor, commentator on this text. So this agape love comes from the lover and not from the quality of the love. So somehow this agape love is different from our love. We look at roadkill and we go, oh, yuck. God, because he's this different type of love, he's so lovely in himself. He's so in love with Father, Son, Holy Spirit together in this happy land of the Trinity that he doesn't need anything and he just wants to give. So he has this insane ability to look at roadkill and to love it. To look at roadkill and actively love it. I would say to love it into existence, to love it into life, to look at roadkill and to, if you know anything about Ephesians 2, he can look at the dead and he can breathe life into them and cause them to be resurrected spiritually. Like this is agape love. So this love that Paul is describing here, he wants to be exact. So he chooses the word agape, a word that depicts a love based not upon the beauty or the worth of the object, but the beauty and worth of the lover. Again, Peter Kreef says, God cannot fall in love. Not because he's less loving than we are, but because he's more. Listen, God cannot fall in love for the same reason water cannot get wet. It is wet. God is love. And love itself cannot receive love as a passivity. And it can only spread it as an activity. God is love and eternal action. Kreeft is saying here, God can't fall into love. Now, what's more important, I would say, and even more brilliant, that means for God, he can't fall out of love. Just like water can never cease to be wet if it's still water, God's love is actually invincible. God's love is the love that we are craving, that we are desiring, that we are hungry and thirsty for. That God doesn't look at despicable things and feel repulsed by them. God can love them into existence. God can love them into beauty itself. And as I said last week, as we read this chapter, the only thing that can compel us to love others with this type of self-sacrificial love is to go 
to the fountain and drink it there first, to go to God and receive it first. And what that means for us is that we must embrace our greatest fears. We must let the God who searches our hearts, the God who sees us better than we see ourselves, we must let him know us. Now, what does that mean? We must let him, he sees everything. He, how, what does it mean? We must let him know us. There's this interesting text. Actually, it's one of the scariest texts in all the Bible. And it goes right along with Roman, or with 1 Corinthians 13, where all of these preachers and all of these ministers and all of these quote unquote people that looked like Christians, they were doing miracles. They were doing all this kind of stuff. And it says, Jesus says to them, when they get to the kingdom, when they get to the stand before the judgment throne of God upon their death or upon the second coming of Christ, that Jesus will look at them and says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. And they're going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. We preached in your name. We healed people in your name. We gave food to the sick in your name. We did a lot of great things in your name. What do you mean you never knew us? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. The works you did were unauthorized. What does that mean? Just like Paul's saying, you can be gifted to the moon. And if you don't have love for God, if you don't let him in and know you and search you and penetrate you and then allow him to give his judgment, allow him to get in you, search the dark corners of your heart and actually speak truth to you and tell you what it really looks like in there. And I know that's fearful. We want people, ah, stay away from there. I kind of got a glimpse of what's in there and I don't want you to have a glimpse of what's in there. And God says, if you want to experience love, you have to open yourself to him and let him search you. I believe it's been said that if we could see 1% of our sin, the ugliness of it, if we could see 1%, we would fall down dead in just shock and awe. Yeah, listen. Jesus saw it all and drank it. One of the darkest scenes in all the Bible is in the garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus is there drinking the cup of our sin. He says, God, he says, God, if there's any other way out of this thing, I don't want to drink this cup. If there's any way out, take the cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. Right? It says he's sorrowful. His soul is sorrowful to the point of death. His disciples are there. He goes, please pray with me. He's under under immense pressure. He's drinking the cup of our sin. And his his apostles can't even stay awake. One of his apostles comes, kisses him on the cheek, betrays him. He's pulled away to be crucified and killed. And it's in this moment, he's downing the cup of wrath. He's downing the cup of our sin that Jesus becomes disgusting to the Father. Paul later says in 2 Corinthians that in that moment, Jesus became sin for us. That he drank the cup of our sins and God lets the hammer of justice rain down upon him. God smites Jesus on the cross. God sees all the wickedness of the world, the the depths of our sin, the dark corners of our heart, the jealousy and insecurity and fears that we have. God sees it all in Jesus, that lovelessness that we all possess personified in his son and God crushes him like a bug on the windshield. Now, can you imagine what Jesus felt in this moment? Because before the garden, Jesus had never tasted sin. See, Jesus has never felt the separation that we feel daily, right? We wake up and some days we just feel gravity's heavier. I'm in a bad mood today. I feel distant from God. I wonder if he still loves me. I wonder if he cares about me. I look and see what's going on in Iraq and I look and see what's going on with the Ebola and I look at all this stuff and I just go, is he even out there? I wake up doubting God. Jesus never felt that. Jesus had this oneness with God his whole life, this connection, this deep oneness with the Father his whole life. Jesus has never felt the, the stain of sin. You know when you do something that, you, that even shocks you? 
you, you reply really jealous or really ugly comment or you do something and it just kind of shocks you how ugly that, that oh man, I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe, he never, Jesus never felt that. He never felt shame or guilt over something he did. Jesus was perfect and sinless. He never experienced distance from the Father. He never experienced sin. Everything Jesus knew. Can you imagine? I can't, I honestly can't go an hour without a sinful thought. I, I, don't, I don't think I can. Without an envy, jealousy, bitterness, strife, something. I just can't. Jesus never had a sinful thought. He was perfect. Never doubted God. But in this moment, see, Jesus knew pure and holy love. But in the garden, Jesus tasted the bitter cup of our transgressions. And on the cross, he felt the father's judgment of that sin in his body. And Jesus, he didn't just take it like a champ. Jesus rocked and reeled under the weight of it. I shudder. I think we do. I think we shudder when we get a tiny glimpse of our own sin and our own selfishness. Jesus drank it all. He drank it down to the dregs and all he does. What's he do when he's on the cross? We know Jesus answer to God's answer to Jesus prayer. Father, if there's another way you can do it, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. We know God looked at Jesus and said, there's no other way. The answer to your prayer is there's no other way. Drink the cup. And on the cross, we don't see Jesus bitter. We don't see Jesus lashing out at God. We see Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see Jesus still saying, my God, my God. See, at the cross, we see agape is invincible. Agape can swallow the sins of the world and still love in spite of it. Agape can see wickedness and still love in spite of it. Agape can feel the fear and not want to do it, but still step into loving when nothing else, there's no reason to love. Agape can love when everything's saying, run away. Everything's saying, let him go. Agape can run. I, I just, I'm so overwhelmed by this. How many of us in this room, when you see brokenness and you see wickedness and you see something disgusting in someone, how many of you stay? How many of you step towards that person? How many of you step into sometimes even their wrath to love them? How many of us see that ugliness and run? God's love, agape love is invincible. Jesus shows us that agape sees the ugly in us, doesn't deny it, sees it and loves us anyways. Like a father. See, this is, as a dad, I loved my children into existence. The love between Amanda and I made a baby. I loved them into existence and now I'm loving them in, into maturity. I'm continuing to love them as they grow up. And that's the same thing that, that God's love does for us. Only in Christ. Only in Christ is this hunger that you have. See, I want to tell you that the love that you want from somebody else is ridiculous. I want to tell you that, but it's not really ridiculous. That love that you think somebody should love you with, that love that you're looking for in all your relationships, the love that you're searching for and trying to find, that love is a memory trace of the love of God. The only place you can find that perfect, eternal, long-lasting agape love that you're craving is in God, and the only way you really see it is at the cross. Only in Christ is our love hunger fed to the fullest. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, when we'll belly up to the table of a love feast that will never end, there our insatiable hunger for love will finally be filled once and for all. But this isn't just for the future. 
No, Jesus will feed us now. Jesus can satisfy this love hunger in us now if you let him search you. You have to be fully known before you can be fully loved. Hebrew 4 tells us that everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes, before the God to whom we must give account. See, God sees us. God knows us. God can truly see you. Will you let him know you? Will you let him give his judgment? Only when God searches your heart and gives his judgment will you see, listen, that you are indeed far worse than you ever thought. Your greatest fears are realized in the gospel. God sees the jealousy and the greed and he doesn't wipe it away. He doesn't excuse it away. He doesn't go, oh, but she's trying. Oh, but it was her... Oh, it's her family of origin. I mean, she really, she had a selfish mom, so she couldn't help it. Oh, he didn't have a dad, so he can't help it. God doesn't excuse it away. He sees our lack of love for what it is. He sees it. He says it's a crime against love. It's a crime against God, who is love. It's disgusting. And yet, Jesus chose to love you. Jesus chose to be rejected for you. He chose to drink the cup of your sins and be crucified and killed for you as worthless. Now people, oh, don't take this out of context as worthless as we are to him. What does that mean? We're worthless. That means God is happy in himself. God doesn't need anything. Bible says, what can human, what can human beings do? What can human hands give to God? We can't, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. He is loving himself and he just wants to give that love to us. So we're worthless to him, but Jesus gave it all for us. God doesn't need us or anything from us. He's love and totally happy in himself. He loved us. Deuteronomy tells us he loves us because he loved us. Now listen, only when you see this and it lights up your mind and it literally sets your heart on fire, only then will you be able to love other people like this. And I think that's what the city needs. People who are so known by God, they embrace their weaknesses, they embrace their sins, they know that they're weak and they're sinful and yet they're loved by God, can now become a fun or can now become a, a, a pipeline for that love to other people. That now when I see other people and I see their flaws and I see their sins, I can still move towards them and love them. And the same love that Jesus moved towards me and loved me when I was disgusting to him. What's that? So another word to say that is only people who feast on the gospel of God's gracious love towards sinners. Only people who feast on the love of God will be satisfied enough to love others like this. I'm closing here. All of these things that love isn't, irritability, bitterness, jealousy, greed, boasting, all of these things that love isn't. Do you know why we do those things? Because we're love hungry. We're love hungry. And what we do when you're love hungry, you look for things, you look to others for things that can only be found in God. You want someone to tell you you're good. So you look for that in other people. Well, the problem is you are good sometimes and sometimes you're not. So if you're looking for, to fill this love hunger, if you're looking for another person to satisfy that, you're going to be on a roller coaster your whole life. When you do good, you'll feel good. When you do bad, you're going to feel bad, even suicidal. See, when you're love hungry, you're looking for other people to satisfy something in you that only God can satisfy. Loneliness. You know, love hungry people, that's, we call that codependency. They always need somebody else to fill the gap in their life. And only God's meant to fill that. 
When you're love hungry, even the good things you do for others, they're not done out of love. They're done for what you can get out of them. What does God do? God gives us the gospel so that we can daily pull up to his table and feast on his love for us. But I ask you, this is, I'm going to get practical. I don't get practical very often in here. You know how to feast on the gospel. You know how to belly up to God's table and feast on the gospel when you're love hungry, when you're not patient, when you're not kind. You know how to do that? Let me give you an example here. We're just going to go right through that. First one, love is patient. Listen, I lack patience when I'm love hungry. What does that mean? It means, let me just show you what I, would, what I do. Father, I am impatient because I believe my ways are the best. I'm impatient because I believe I have to have everything together. If I drop a ball, someone's go- not going to love me. If I fail in ministry, someone's not going to love me. If I show up late to a meeting, someone's going to say, he's a screw up. He's not responsible. So I lack patience with myself and other people because I believe down in my soul, I believe that people who have all their ducks in a row, people who have everything planned out, people have no time to slow down, right? Those people are lovable people. That's what I believe. And that's not true in light of the gospel and waiting. God is so gracious. Doesn't feel like it. Put you in the slow line just to teach you about the gospel. Waiting reminds me I'm not in control. Waiting reminds me God's ways are better than my ways. All of my ability to control things is a mirage. And God, what does he do? Listen, this is the ridiculous side of things. God sees me in my impatience and he steps into it with me. He loves me in it. He's patient with my impatience. He doesn't lash out at me, but he loves me. And even in my impatience, God is not disgusted with me because he's already been disgusted with it in Jesus on the cross. And now God is patient with me and he loves me patiently in it. Just like Jesus loved me patiently on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I'm angry and I'm impatient. Guys, this is how you feast on the gospel. We could go straight through it when I'm not kind. Why am I not kind? Typically the same thing, more than likely. Somebody's crossing my will. Just like when I was a little kid, somebody took my candy, right? Crossing my will, so I'm not kind to them because I think they're getting in the way of whatever thing I'm trying to do. So how do I gospel myself in that? How do I feast upon the gospel in that? I gotta remember that I deserve the wrath of God. I've sinned greatly against love. And I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to die. I, that's what I deserve. I was roadkill on the side of the road and God looked at me and breathed life into me and gave me this life. How could I possibly be not kind to someone when I'm thinking about that? Feasting on the gospel. What about when you're boasting? Well, that's easy. There, you cannot boast and remember the gospel at the same time. I'm just gonna put this picture I like this. I wasn't planning on doing this little roadkill illustration, but it's working. Roadkill. How can roadkill boast? Okay. If roadkill were to live again somehow, right? If I was, I had some way to bring this thing back to life. Anything roadkill did from this moment on would be a result of my grace. Right? Roadkill did not resurrect itself. Roadkill was going to rot and be ran over flat as a pancake, right? That's what roadkill is going to get. This is the reality for Christians. Now it might sound dark. Whoa, you guys think so lowly of yourself. That's what scripture tells us. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. And God loved us when we were dead on the table. He loved us when we were roadkill and he breathes life into us. And now every good thing we do from this moment on is a result of his grace and not my own. You can't walk with a swagger and remember the gospel. You can't. And yet we do because we forget the gospel. Now, 
I'm going to say practically, this is how you feast on the gospel every day. When you're insecure, you feast on the God. How can I be insecure when the God who knows every detail about me, every sin, the ones that shock me and the ones that I haven't even done yet, he knew about them and he loved me fully in spite of them. How can I be insecure? The God who knows everything about me has already justified me, has already saved me, has already loved me. All of our sin. This is what it looks like to feast on the gospel. Day in, day out, hour after hour, minute after minute. We could go through the whole list, but we're not. If this is, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you. It might sound dark, man, roadkill, Justin, There's freedom in it. I think we all feel it. I think we all feel that we're broken. I think we all feel we read what love is and we go, gosh, that ain't me. I think we all feel it. And the freedom that comes in it, the facade, the fakeness, the pretending, the hiding. I have a friend that says, (laughs) I let my freak flag fly. And that's what it is. Like, don't hide it. We know you're broken. We know you're craving love. We know you're looking for it all around. We know that's why you take that selfie six times. Oh, there's the lighting. That's what I wanted. Right? If I get the one just right, then I'm sexy. Then I'm good. Then it's the profile pic. Then everybody will love it. And the comments and all the stuff I'm looking for. All of that is showing a shallowness of our soul, a hunger, a love hunger that we have. And I'm telling you, it can only be met in Christ because no one can love you like God has loved you. No one can show you the depth of self-sacrificial love that he's shown you, that he knows you and he can see you as worthless as roadkill and yet give the sinless son of God on your behalf. You pray. Father, What love is this? This is good news. I pray that you would breathe through your spirit into unbelievers in this room and you would give them faith to believe it. That We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to do better and try harder. We have to see ourselves as sinners, let you search us and know us, and we have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That beauty of the gospel is that though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, Jesus drank the cup for us. He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. That now the goodness of Jesus was placed upon and counted for us. So though we were dead in our sins, you have made us alive in Christ. You have cleansed us. You have washed us. You have purified us. And every day you're making us more and more and more into the image of your son till one day we will meet him in glory and we will be forever filled with the love of God. I pray that you give that new life to unbelievers. I pray for those of us who wander from that, those of us who think uh, religiously, like if we do better, you'll love us. and, And we're kind of past those sins and we're not really that ugly anymore and our sin doesn't really affect us that much, that you'd give us a glimpse into the darkness of our hearts, and you would give us an even greater glimpse at the glories of Christ, the glory of God in the gospel, that we are great sinners, but you are an even greater Savior. I pray as we come, take your body and to drink your blood, your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us, to cover our sins, to forgive us for all of our wrongdoing, and to confer upon us the goodness of Jesus, the righteousness of Christ, that now we positionally stand as cleansed, as forgiven, as righteous because of the work of Jesus. And we take it and rejoice and worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.